Now, last week, uh, we wrapped up our series in Matthew talking about the Great Commission. Jesus' final words in Matthew's gospel that called us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. And last week, we also celebrated with baptism. So as we talk about the Great Commission, as we think about that, we tend to think about the Great Commission individualistically. You know, we tend to think about, okay, what is, what is my part in it? Who can I share the gospel with? And that's beautiful. You know, we want to think about the Great Commission as individuals, as families, as, as discipleship groups, as missional communities. We want to we think about it at every level. But we also want to think about the Great Commission corporately. We want to think about it together as an entire church. And what we see in Scripture is that the culmination of the Great Commission, or the culmination of, of like individual verses like we see in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, where we see, um, we see Paul's, Paul's call to uh, entrust these things to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. What we see is the culmination of all of these individual calls to evangelism and discipleship is that ultimately new churches are birthed, new churches are planted. So like throughout the book of Acts, throughout the Bible, as, as Paul and other missionaries go out and they, they do evangelism, they share the gospel with new believers, we see these new believers gathered into new churches. And so we see that the Great Commission, we see that this call is not just an individual call, but it is also a call to do the work to see new churches born. The book of Acts is not just a great evangelistic explosion, but rather we see the hard work and the labor pains of new churches being born again and again and again. That was the goal, not simply to win new converts, but to plant new churches. So this morning, I want to talk about the centrality of church planting in the mission of God. And I want us to see our opportunity to be a part of it. So I want to look at that in scripture, in our history, and I want us to wrestle with what this looks like in our future. Because for the handful of you that have been around since the earliest days of the church or for a lot of the history of the church, you know that we embedded church planting deeply in the DNA of our church. That we were continually asking the question, who is going next? And where are they going? And when are they going? And who is going with them? And who are the people that we're going to raise up to replace those that we send? We want to get back to those sorts of questions. Part of my goal for this morning is to reinvigorate those questions and to invite our entire body to wrestle with what is our part in this. Before we take a look at this in Scripture anymore, I want to take a minute to tell you what I don't mean when I talk about our opportunity to be involved in church planning. I told you a minute ago that I want us to understand the centrality of church planning and the mission of God and our opportunity to be a part of it. Now, what I'm not saying is that for everyone in this room and for everyone listening at home, I'm not saying that I want every single one of you to become a pastor or to become a pioneering leader or to necessarily be the person who moves across the country or around the world to see a new church established. What I want you to hear loud and clear as we get started is that God created you. 
God created you, and he intentionally made you the way that he made you. You are not a mistake. Your, your gifts, your bent, your personality, your uniqueness was on purpose. God's design for you. So our role in this great endeavor of church planting is going to look differently. Some of you are introverts, some of you are extroverts, some of you, um, some of you love to leave the charge, some love to work behind the scenes. Some of you, you just come alive and you really thrive when you're in roles that involve nurturing and caring and maintaining. You know, and, and that's part of my life. I understand that. Those are, those are among my roles. But for the people who just come alive in that, in, in maintaining, it, it baffles me. I don't understand it because God may be, to be one of those people who, who really comes alive when we're breaking new ground. You know, that's what excites me. But the body of Christ has room for both, has need of both. In Ipsy, we celebrate Rosie the Riveter. People familiar with that logo, that, that, that icon, that image? We celebrate Rosie the Riveter not because she picked up a machine gun and went off to war, but because she did her part to support the war effort from home. She assembled the tanks and the planes and encouraged the soldiers who would carry them off to war. And likewise in church planning, some of us are going to go and some of us are going to send. Some of us are going to be up front. Some of us are going to be behind the scenes. God made us with great diversity. Uh, We read in the middle of Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so the idea there is that each of us is a unique work of art. We're uniquely designed by God for unique purposes. And there's beauty in that amazing diversity. But what we also see in Scripture is that in the midst of all of that diversity, we're called to a unity. We're called to unity of purpose. We're called to unity of mission. We're called to contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. And one of the ways that we do that is by working together to see new churches established. So this morning, I want us to each individually be wrestling with these questions. You know, what does this look like? What does it look like in my life? What is the part that I have to play? What are the barriers that we need to overcome? What kind of disciples do we need to make in order to accomplish the purposes that God has called us to? I want us all to wrestle with these questions. I never want us to be satisfied with the status quo. I want us to be a church that has our Bibles open. Attentive to the word of God, attentive to the leading of his spirit, asking the question, God, how do you want me as an individual? How do you want my family? How do you want us as a community to steward our lives together for the glory of God? We read through the pages of scripture and we see the people of God accomplishing great exploits for his glory. And on a good day in the morning when we're sipping our coffee, we read that and there's this little little push of inspiration. We're like, wow, is that cool? And then we get on to our day and we go through the motions of our increasingly jaded lives and we don't expect God to accomplish great exploits through us. My brothers and sisters, that is sad. 
God gave us his word. He gave us these stories, not, not just to show us what he once did in the past, but what he might once again do through us. The things that God accomplished for his glory in Scripture, he accomplished through very ordinary people. And the things that he will accomplish in the future, he will accomplish through very ordinary people that he might be the one to receive the glory. My prayer is that we, by faith, would be those ordinary people. Amen? I want us to see, I want us to believe that the local church is God's chosen instrument to change the world, and I want us to be that church. Now, for context, again, some of you have been around longer than others. Mosaic, we're an 11-year-old church plant. Um, We've been a big part of helping to plant churches in Columbus and Detroit and Howell. About four years ago, we sent out a team to start River City Church in Grand Rapids. Um, In the last couple of years, a lot of our efforts have been going to, to help partner with churches that are already in Cuba to plant new churches there. But again, I want us to be asking the question here, who is going next? And where are they going? And when are they going? And who is going with them? And what kind of void is that going to create? And what kind of leadership development do we need to do in order to fill that void in advance so that we can continue to hit the ground running after that church plant and we can get moving on to the next one? Oh, that we would have a great vision to accomplish exploits for the glory of God. All right, where do we see this in Scripture? We begin with the Great Commission, uh, right where we started last week, where we've already begun this morning, where we see that believers are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, in our individualistic American society, we tend to think of baptism as an individual act. You know, it's it's my personal declaration of faith. It's my personal identification with the teaching of Jesus. But what baptism is for us and has always been, and perhaps what was even more emphasized in in other cultures that were less individualistic, is that baptism is a public identification with the people of God. You're publicly identifying with the family of God, with this local church, with the same church that's going to continue to train you, that's going to continue to teach you to obey everything that Jesus commanded. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. I want to move from there to spend most of our time in the book of Acts. I want to see how the book of Acts begins because it's a hinge. We see a a reiteration of the Great Commission. This time in the words of Luke, we see it in in Acts 1.8. In the Great Commission, we were commanded to go. The followers of Jesus were commanded to go. In Acts 1.8, the followers of Jesus are promised, you will go but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So again, in the Great Commission, we're commanded to go. In Acts 1.8, we're promised that we will go. Across the street and around the world to carry the gospel both locally and globally. And as new believers are are raised up in these new places, they need to be gathered into new churches. And new leaders need to be trained for these new churches. And that's what we see in the book of Acts, and that's, that's what we see in all of the letters 
that comprise the New Testament. We see church planning, not just the making of disciples, but the labor pains and the birth of new churches. That was the goal. So if we turn to Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, he writes to Titus, he says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders. Or the word that we more often use, appoint pastors. In every town as I directed you. In other words, Paul and his companions, they'd led a lot of people to Christ on the island of Crete. And now somebody needed to do the hard work of organizing these new believers into new churches, where new leaders would be trained and raised up to lead. Likewise, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 saying, Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Again, the work is not just to win new converts, but to plant new churches and to teach these new believers how do we function within the family of God? How do we function within these new churches. In other words, they were trying to answer and ask and strategize around the question, what kind of disciples do we need to make to fulfill the mission we've been given? How are we going to train and raise up new disciples who who can not only function as a local church, but they can continue to reach new people and train new leaders so that we can send some of these out and others will be raised up to fill the void so that we can keep this movement going. That was normative New Testament missions. That was the blueprint for the church. I want you to think about that for a minute because I don't think some of you are tracking with me fully on this. I want you to understand that the normative pattern that we see in Scripture is that the church would reproduce. That it would continually reproduce. That we would be leading new people to Christ and we would be raising up new leaders, new pastors, new small group leaders, new, new kids ministry teachers, um, new, new parents, new, new, new couples getting married and starting new families. We'd be raising up all of these so that we could continually be sending out some of our best leaders. And we could continually be filling that void with new leaders who will continue the work of sending. And the leaders that we send out, that they would go and they would establish new beachheads. And, and, and they would be the point from which more new churches are sent and scattered. I want us to understand that that is the normative pattern in the New Testament. It's not just something that happened once, but it's recorded in order that it might happen again. I want us to see that. I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to be completely overwhelmed and crushed by it. Because that is exactly what we see in Scripture. And that's why the book of Acts, as soon as we get through Acts 1-8 and all of chapter 1, we get to chapter 2. And what do we get in, in Acts chapter 2? We get the day of Pentecost. We get the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell the church and empower the church and to lead the church and to guide the church and to direct the church into this mission that the church cannot accomplish apart from the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. God calls us into something that is daunting, that is absolutely impossible. And he tells his followers, even earlier in Acts chapter 1, before Acts 1, he tells them, I want you to sit. I want you to wait. 
I don't even want you to start this mission until the Holy Spirit comes because you are inadequate. You are unable. You cannot accomplish my purposes in the world unless I empower you and guide you. So here's where we're going. Here's what we're going to do. Sit on it. Stew on it. Feel overwhelmed by it because the day is coming when my Holy Spirit is going to come in and dwell you and empower you and direct you to accomplish these purposes. Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit is there, not just as a historical reference to what God once did, but a reminder to the modern church that if we are going to accomplish God's purposes in this world, we must be indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We must walk in step with the Spirit. We can't be quenching the Holy Spirit. No, we need to see sin in our lives and we need to put it to death in order that that we might focus on God, in order that our eyes might be set on Him, in order that we might walk in step with the Spirit. Amen? That's what we see the first bunch of Acts chapter 2. We get to the end of Acts chapter 2 and we begin to see some patterns that are normative for the church. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42, it says they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? The apostles' teaching is what you have in your Bible. They devoted themselves to the very Word of God. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship. What does that mean? It means they, they devoted themselves to their local church, to the community of people who they were locking arms with to accomplish these purposes. They didn't forsake meeting together in the words of the book of Hebrews. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. What does that mean? We're talking about meals. We're talking about potlucks. But even more, we're we're talking about the shorthand for communion, for the Lord's Supper, for this this symbol that, that we remind ourselves of every week of Christ's body broken and his blood shed for us. In other words, they devoted themselves to reminding each other of the gospel of their own desperate need for grace and of the sufficient provision of grace that God has provided. That He has given us His righteousness and He has taken our sin and our shame so that we can walk forward with with heads held high, eyes fixed on Jesus, into this world where we share our joy in following Jesus. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, to the gospel. Finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. So they devoted themselves to the Bible, to the church, to the gospel of God's grace, and to prayer. Prayerful dependence, recognizing, again, these are daunting things that God has called us to. So if we just show up on Sunday morning, you know, a little bit frazzled, and we haven't really thought about God in a week, and, and, and we come together and we talk about Christian things and whatever, that's, that's not it. No, we devote ourselves to prayer. We beg God to move because we recognize that unless God moves, nothing is going to happen. And yet what we see again and again in Scripture is that God longs to move. It's not that these are like isolated incidents or or unicorns or the pot at the end of the rainbow that you're never actually going to get to. No, we see in Scripture, in the very Word of God, that God loves to move for His glory. Some of us, we don't spend enough time reading the Old Testament because there's unfamiliar names and unfamiliar places and, and, and things that we don't understand. It's like, I don't know exactly how to apply this. Man, but when we don't read books like Chronicles, we, we miss out on the riches of what God has declared to be normative about his working in this world. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, says the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. 
Listen to that. Memorize that. If you do nothing else today, go home and memorize. It's just half a verse I'm giving you. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, part A. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. What's he saying there? He's saying that we worship a God of great exploits. We worship a God who does audacious things for his glory in order that people who do not know him and do not love him might be drawn to fall on their knees and worship him with joy. He says, that's the business that I've been in from day one, and that's the business that I'll be in on the last day. And in between the first day and the last day, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for people through whom he might do his great exploits for his glory. That is beautiful. I don't know about you, but I want each of us to be among those men and women. Amen? This is what we see in the book of Acts. That these, these things are the normative patterns that God has called us into and how he wants to use ordinary people for his glory. Now, we read through the book of Acts, and it's not just all happy and sunshine. We see the dark side. We see the hard days. We see the difficult days. We don't get very far into the book of Acts before things begin to go wrong. I'm not going to go into all the things that go wrong because there's a lot even just among those who are recorded. But as we progress through like, like Acts chapter 6, one of the things that's going on in Acts chapter 6 is we're starting to get division in the church based on class, based on culture. You, you've got, you've, at that point the church was almost entirely one ethnicity. It was all Jews. And yet there were some Jews who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, like the ancestral languages of their people. And there were other Jews who'd been scattered around the world who just came back for, for festivals and feasts, and they spoke Greek. And what we see is that among the widows who spoke Hebrew and the widows who spoke Greek, they weren't being treated the same. They weren't being treated fairly. The, the Hebrew-speaking widows, they were held in high honor. And the Greek-speaking widows who had just traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, and it happened that God came in power and established a church, and they were there, they were being neglected. No one was bringing them food. We, we see these, these sorts of divisions, and we're ugly, and we see how the church works to overcome it. We see in Acts chapter 7 and 8 that that this church that was called to carry the gospel out of the city, out of Jerusalem, into Judea, into Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth, that they simply weren't doing it. They weren't answering that call. They were so excited about what God was doing in their city that they lost sight of what God desired to do through them around the world. And so what does God do? In the tail end of chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8, God allows persecution to come into the church in order to scatter his people. Because they'd become complacent. They'd lost sight of their vision. They, they, they weren't doing what God had called them to do. So he brought persecution into the church in order to scatter them to the ends of the earth. In order to force them to go. But even then, the church still didn't understand. It didn't, didn't embrace. They didn't take seriously the global, cross-cultural call of the gospel. This afternoon, if you want to look at the story, look at Acts chapter 10. 
And what we see is Peter, who at that time is the primary human leader of the church. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Peter is the guy who, who he's kind of designated that's, that's running the show, that's leading the church at that time. Peter is leading this church that has been called to a global mission and a global vision. And yet Peter does not grasp this global vision and this global mission, so much so that in Acts chapter 10, there's these series of visions where where God appears to Peter and he gives him a vision and another vision and another vision, all of which are prepping him to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then God also appears to this Roman centurion named Cornelius, this guy who's referred to as a God-fearer, meaning he worshipped the God of Israel. He worshipped the one true God, but he, he wasn't a Jew and he didn't really understand it. And there were, there were a lot of gaps, but, but he was worshipping that God with the little bit of light that he had. So God comes to Cornelius and, and he basically preps him and says, I am, I'm going to send this guy and he's going to bring the gospel to you. He's going to bring to you good news. He's going to show you how I want you to worship me. So there's all these visions, there's all this work. God gives Cornelius some direction. He sends messengers, they do all this thing. Ultimately, it culminates in this scene where Peter has been been ferried off to this new community where Cornelius lives, and he's been brought into this massive living room where all sorts of pagan people have gathered to hear the gospel. And he gets there, and he's so out of touch with the call of God. He's so out of touch with God's heart for the world. He's so out of touch with the mission that he's been called to that he gets there and he's standing in front of this massive crowd and he says, guys, what is it that you wanted me to talk to you about? I'm sorry, but I don't really understand why I'm here. And they basically tell him, you are here to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are here to tell us how we might be saved. You are here to speak on behalf of God to us, that we might be welcomed into the church. Here's my concern for our church. How often are we like Peter? How often do we lose sight of the global, cross-cultural mission and vision that God has called us to? How often do we lose sight of the miraculous work that God has called us into by the power of His Holy Spirit? How often do we walk into a meeting or or walk into a grocery store or, or walk into a living room or walk into a relationship? And spiritually speaking, we have no idea why we're there. We don't understand that God has arranged this. We don't understand that God has ordained it. We don't understand that God has been preparing us for this moment to herald the gospel. I don't know about you, but I've been in that embarrassing situation where where I see somebody in my life that God God has given me to share the gospel with, and I'm praying for them, and I'm waiting waiting for the opportunity, and I'm thinking, man, I want to invite this this person to church. But I'm I'm a little bit timid. I'm a little bit scared. I don't want to be offensive. I'm waiting for the right opportunity, and the next Sunday comes, and they show up at church without me inviting them. And it's a little bit awkward because they're like, I don't, I don't know if I should really be here. I don't know if this is right. And, and what they're in, implicitly saying is, you didn't invite me here. That's really sad. How often do we lose sight of the global, cross 
cultural, grand and wonderful call of God on our lives. To do exploits for His glory. To invite other people into His kingdom. To go and make disciples. To be His witnesses in Ann Arbor, in Ipsy, in Milan, in Celine, in Dexter, in Canton, in Ohio, Indiana, and to the very ends of the earth. What a wonderful thing we've been called to. In the book of Acts, we see the good and the bad. We see fruitfulness and we see failures because God desires to make us fruitful even in the midst of our failures. He wants us to have some weak characters that we can identify with who who fall on their faces and then God uses them despite them because that's exactly what he wants to do with us. In the book of Acts, we see the good and the bad, but we also see churches planting churches. In Acts chapter 13, we see the church in Antioch. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they specifically set aside two of their best leaders to be sent out to plant new churches. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, he says this. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul. Saul gets renamed Paul. That's Paul who wrote so much of the New Testament. It says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And from that moment on, Paul and his companions, they they go on multiple journeys that cover half of the Mediterranean world. And they continue to raise up new disciples and new traveling companions. And they, they split into two teams. And those, those two separate teams, they go out and they continue, they continue to go into new towns. And they reach new people with the gospel. And they organize those new converts into new churches. And, and they do so in the major cities in the various regions with, with a vision that from those major cities, they're going to raise up teams that are going to go out into the smaller cities and the villages and, and out into the rural areas, and they're going to continue to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. We see church planting, and we see intentionality, not just in winning converts, but in making disciples and in raising up new leaders who can, who can fill the void when other new leaders are sent. We, we meet men like Timothy. Timothy, he's a guy who trusted Christ in a small town named Lystra. But pretty soon he's recruited to go with Paul and he becomes one of his primary traveling companions and ultimately he settles in a church in Ephesus. And he becomes for a time the leader, the primary leader of the church in Ephesus. Or we meet a guy like Apollos. that He was a native of Alexandria, but, but he came to Christ and he understood the gospel in Ephesus. And then he's like, guys, we got plenty of teachers in Ephesus. What about Achaia? What, what, what about that whole region on, on the other side of the sea? What if we sent some people there? What if I went to Corinth and, and preached the gospel there? And they're like, yeah, go. And no doubt he left a void because when we read Paul's letter to, to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, we read him talking about, yeah, some people follow Apollo, some Paul, whatever. There's still these people who are like, oh man, we miss the good old days when Apollos was here and he was preaching because that guy could preach and, and Paul's just kind of mediocre. But the people who actually caught the vision, they're like, yeah, we're glad that Apollos is gone. Going, sending, it's a beautiful thing. 
Beautiful, wonderful thing. Apollos goes from Ephesus to Corinth. He goes someplace else after that. We see it again and again, this intentionality of not just winning converts, but making disciples and raising up new leaders so that we can send leaders and replace others that fill the void. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for us, that we would be a people of great intentionality. That every single one of us would be wrestling with the question, what does it look like for me to lean into the opportunities that I have to be developed? What does it look like for me to grow as a disciple? What does it look like for me to, to, to take some swings, to get some, to get some at-bats in some very small responsibilities? that might lead to greater responsibilities down the line. I want every single one of us to be, to be wrestling with the question, am I to be one of those who is sent? Or am I to be one of those who is sending? Should I go or should I send? And when and where? And what does that look like? We live in an extraordinarily transient community. And what that means is that for those of us who have been around this church for a long time and are really trying to pour our lives into other people, there's a certain sense in, in which we get our hearts broken again and again and again and again and again. Because we, we love people. Like Paul, Paul talked about um, various people who he was leading spiritually. He says, you are my very heart. And some of us, we've, we've lived that here. You know, and when our very heart uproots and moves across the country, it's painful, okay? But it happens. It happens continually in this community, and that's okay. And, and we know that those individuals who go, they can be a blessing someplace else. But here's my desire. My desire is that some of you in this room or some of you who are watching at home, that many of you in the coming years, that you would break my heart. Not because you get your dream job in your dream city and you're finally living you know, among the mountains or near the ocean or whatever it is that you want. But because you catch a vision, a global vision for the kingdom of God, and you not only go, but you are sent by this church strategically, maybe as a part of a larger team, to go and establish a new church in a new place. That's beautiful. That's the way I want my heart to be broken. I want to experience that again and again and again and again. My kids can tell you occasionally they'll hear me muttering what they, they consider to be silly statements. Like, like I'm, I'm walking around the house and I'm just kind of talking to myself. I'm like, man, I love Rob. I can't wait to send Rob across the country around the world. They're like, what do you mean you love Rob and you can't wait to get rid of him? I'm like, both are true. I love that man. He is such a joy to me. And I long and I pray and I can't wait for the day that we get rid of Rob. That we send him out strategically to lead a team to carry the gospel someplace else. Because God made us all differently, but one of the things that I see church planting leadership potential in that man. And I want to see it used. And I want some of you guys who are like big Rob fans to say no. Oh, Rob's going to go? I'll go with Rob. That's beautiful. 
when, when, when Luke was in middle school, that was one of the things we were, were talking about church planning a lot. And he's like, well, Rob will lead a church plan at some point. Maybe I'll choose my college wherever Rob's going to go. That's the sort of mindset that I want us to have. That's beautiful. And I don't want it to be about one person or a few select individuals. I want it to be about every single one of us asking the question, what is my role in this? Should I go? Should I send? Maybe I'm not a pioneering leader. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not a church planner. Maybe, maybe I'm not a very good evangelist. Maybe I'm not a very good disciple maker. Maybe what I'm good at is hospitality. Maybe I'm not even good at talking to people and making them feel welcome, but I'm good at baking cookies. And when somebody new comes, I could bake them some cookies, and I don't want to actually take them the cookies to them because that would get me in a conversation and I feel a little awkward about conversations, but I'm going to find somebody who's a little bit more extroverted than me who has a complimentary side of that hospitality gift that I have. And maybe I can bake the cookies and they can take the cookies and this person can feel welcome and maybe this person will be somebody who we will develop and will disciple and maybe they'll go or maybe they'll send or maybe there'll be somebody who fills the void when somebody else goes. But I want us to be asking The question, what is our part in carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth? Amen? Because these are normative New Testament questions. Much has been made about the fact that the book of Acts has no conclusion. The the church planning organization that we're part of, it's called Acts 29 because the book of Acts has 28 chapters and it has no ending because the implication is that you and I are to continue the story. That's a beautiful thing. But I want to highlight one other aspect near the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, near the closing words. I want us to look at a warning. A warning that our hearts might not be hardened. That we might not close our eyes or plug up our ears against the Word of God. In this warning, Paul Paul quotes God's words to Isaiah, saying, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Now, the context of this warning the way in which Paul is using it, it's evangelistic. It's a warning against people who would harden their heart to the gospel of salvation. It's a warning against people who would hear the gospel of God's grace and would harden their heart and say, I do not need his grace. And some of you might need to hear that warning today. Some of you might need to to embrace your need for a savior and the lavish grace of God to forgive your sins and to recreate you anew. And if that's new, then that's your word. For, for those of you who have surrendered your lives to Jesus Christ, here's the warning that I want you to hear. I don't want you to harden your heart to the grand, audacious calling that God has placed on your life. When you read the Bible or when you hear the Bible preach and you hear about great exploits that the people of God accomplished, I do not want you to harden your heart and say, well, that's not for me and God would not want to accomplish great things through me.
when we read the story of Moses, I want us to see a very ordinary man. A man with a speech impediment. A man who struggled. And I, and I, want, us, I want us to see God using that man to part the Red Sea and to walk, a, walk across on dry ground. When we read the story of Joshua, I want us to see an ordinary man who's been told by God, I want you to take a very small army and I want you to march around a fortified city with with soldiers on top of the walls. I want you to march around it seven times playing some music. And I want us to see an ordinary guy who was commanded by God to do something that seemed completely nonsensical to him. And yet he answered the call and he saw God move for his glory. When we read the story of David, I want us to see a child who was out of his mind frustrated that another second might elapse in which God was robbed of his glory and that people were defying the living God. And I want us to be among the men and women that, that, that say, what can I do about this? How can I intervene? Who's going to go? Send me! When we read about David's mighty men, and about the exploits that they accomplished for the glory of God, I want us to be among the people who say, I want to give me some exploits. Not because we're great, not because we're wise, not because we're clever, not because we're strong, but because we're weak and we're lowly and we're kind of a pathetic lot. And those are exactly the sort of people that God continually uses for his glory. Because God looks at us and he says, well, clearly you didn't accomplish it on your own. But I want us to be the kind of people who are asking God, how might you use me for your glory? And that is not a proud question. Oh, it can be. We can try to get in the center of God's will so that the people around us will be impressed, but that's stupid. That's ridiculous. That's that's silly. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. I want us to seek to accomplish great things for God, not for our glory, but for his. I simply want us to be counted among the people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And then God, God says, well, okay, that's a guy that I'm going to use. How do we get there? I told you to wrestle with the question, what kind of disciples do we need to make to fulfill the mission that we've been given? We don't get there through org charts and strategies and plans. Now, some of what we see in in the book of Acts, we do see some things that are normative. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the very word of God. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, meaning to the church, to the community of people. They were encouraging each other. This is not an individualistic pursuit. This is something that we do together. We pursue God together. We grow in God together. They devote themselves to the apostle teaching, meaning the word of God, to the fellowship, meaning the church and the community of people who are in it. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, meaning they devoted themselves to the gospel of God's grace and they reminded themselves continually of their desperate need for grace. 
and they devoted themselves to prayer. And oh, that we would be praying in faith that God would do great things for His glory through us. Amen? That's our call. All right. One last idea. This is, this is particularly for you child of the, children in the 80s who've been zoning out. Huey Lewis. You guys remember him? If his music's terrible and ungodly, I'm sorry. I, I don't really know much about music. But it just popped in my head. He had this song, I want a new drug. His old drugs weren't great. He wants a new drug, one that won't make him sick. Ultimately, he says he wants a drug that makes him feel like he feels when he's with this girl. Whatever. Okay, it's probably a lousy song. We are a people who are continually chasing after new drugs. We're chasing after new highs. We're, we're trying to figure out what is it going to be that's going to satisfy? What is it going to be that's going to give me joy? You know, I, I, got, I got the new house. It was great for a minute, but now I need a new drug. I got the degree. It was great for a minute, but now I need a new degree. We're in Ann Arbor. Let's, we, we don't realize that degrees don't satisfy. We just get another degree. We're, we're these people, you know, whether it's a silly app on our phone or a, or a show that we're binging on Netflix or, or a hobby or whatever it is, we're these people who are constantly chasing after a new drug, a new career, a new whatever. My passion is that your new drug would be Jesus. And that he wouldn't make you sick. That he would give you joy. My prayer is that your new drug would be Jesus and your new drug would be the joy of leading other people to faith in Christ. Because if you get a hold of that, I I promise you, it is addictive. If you lead somebody to Christ and you see their life completely transformed from the inside out and you see a joy in them that makes you hunger for more joy for yourself, that will propel you into mission. And you won't need some preacher to get up there and and make you feel bad about not participating in the mission the way that you should. Okay? If you do nothing else, seek Jesus and, and pray for an opportunity to share his love and share his grace with someone else. And I trust that if God gives you that chance, that will start a virtuous cycle in you and God will take care of the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who do great exploits for your glory. I pray that we would be a people who believe that you stand over us in heaven your eyes ranging throughout the earth looking to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to you. Lord, I pray that we would believe that you want to do great things in our day for your glory and that we would see the opportunity to joyfully be among the people that you use. God, I pray that we would not see ourselves as great or significant in that, but we would be humbled by the fact that the God of all creation might use us. God, I pray that these people, these individuals in this church would see you use each of them greatly. Not because they are great, but because you are great. Amen.